everybody! Welcome to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad that you found me. If you've been here before, thank you so much for tuning back in. You guys mean the absolute world to me, and I really love getting to know you guys in my comments and my videos, and it means the absolute world to me when people comment on each one of my videos. I legit light up when I see comments, so please keep them coming. I love talking to you in the comments, and if you're new here, I hope that you become one of those people. Today's mobster is somebody that I'm probably most excited about talking about over any mafioso I've ever covered. It's so exciting when you find somebody in the genre that you're interested in that you can actually relate to. Especially when people like you are typically banned from these sorts of activities. But when this one crossed my path when I was researching further into Luciano for my redo video of Luciano, I literally changed plans for the next video. I was supposed to do a redo of my four oldest videos in a row, which means that I should be doing a video about Al Capone this week. But when I found this mobster, I need to do it. There was no waiting. There was no nothing. Al Capone could wait. This one has to go now. I do want to put a warning out for this video before I start. There's going to be a lot of talk about mental health struggles, mental health disorders, and suicide in this video. If that's something that triggers you, please go ahead and skip this video. As much as I want viewers and I want to build a community, I don't want to trigger anybody by talking about these disorders. I love my viewers way too much for that, so if these topics bother you, skip the video, don't watch it. So go get your popcorn, your drinks, get comfy, and let's get started. Oni Virginia Hill was born on August 26th, 1916 in Lipscomb, Alabama. Her parents, W.M. Mack and Margaret Hill, had 10 children together. Holy freaking crap. That's so crazy to me. I, I feel like so many of the Mafia members that I cover, they have so many brothers and sisters and I literally just can't even imagine what that's like. I personally am an only child. I grew up with my cousins that were kind of like my brothers and sisters. We lived together most of my childhood. But at the end of the day, I always knew that I was my parents' only child. That means that I really don't have any idea what it's like to have an actual brother or sister. I have one cousin that I've always been the closest to my whole life. I practically raised this girl. I paid for her lunches at school. I would drive her to school, give her money for lunch. I would buy her clothes. I was the one that they called when she was acting up. She was running down the street backwards, giving the principal the finger. I was the one that they called. Not her mother, not her father. Her father passed away. They called me. So that is how involved in her life I was. So I view her as a sister. I always have and I always will, but she's not my actual sister. She's my cousin. So yeah, I don't know how it would feel to have a family that has 10 siblings. That just sounds so crazy to me. I can't even imagine having one sibling. It's wild. Oni went by her middle name, Virginia, so that's what I'm gonna call her going forward because she always called herself Virginia Hill. Virginia was the seventh child born, so she had six older siblings and three younger siblings. Her father was a horse and mule trader, and her mother operated a boarding house. I'm honestly not sure if that means that, like, she worked at the front desk of a hotel or she was a madam. It it could be, you know, like, nice words for she was a madam and operating a whorehouse. So I, I don't really know. Um, it doesn't say anything. It just says she operated a boarding house. So what the fuck do I know? The family was extremely poor. Neither parent brought in a lot of income. There's 12 mouths to feed. Things are really, really hard for this family. Like, very hard 
hard. Now, this place is not a happy place to be. This wasn't one of those, oh, they don't have money, but they have love stories. No, it was absolutely not that. Mac would beat the daylights out of Virginia or any of the family members on a regular basis. Her father had a drinking problem and he would come home and just beat the shit out of the first family member that he saw. One night, he came home completely wasted. He's slurring his words. He's tripping all over the place. And the first person he sees is Virginia. He attacked Virginia and she knew she was about to catch a bad beating, like a bad one. Virginia, who's about eight years old, this little badass, she says, no, sir, not today. Not today, Satan. Nuh-uh. This is not gonna happen. So what does she do? She picks a hot skillet up off the stove that has bacon grease in it and she throws it at her father. Go Virginia. He never tried to lay his hands on her again and for good reason. While he was laying on the ground crying like a little bitch, she ran away. She escaped the situation and that was all she needed to do. She needed to get out of that situation right then and there and she got it done. She was a very timid little girl. She, she wasn't boisterous. She wasn't outgoing. She was very timid and she had so much love to give. Like it was crazy. She used to scrounge around and find pennies so that she could go buy candy for the other kids. She didn't even buy candies for herself. She bought it for the other kids in the town, her siblings. She wanted to make sure everybody else had candy. Her hitting her father was completely out of character, but she did learn a lesson that day. She learned that if you come face to face with a bully, they were almost certainly a coward. They couldn't take what they handed out, and whatever consequences that you face for doing what you do can't be worse than what would happen if you didn't strike back in the first place. The family was considered white trash. The the kind of people you would expect to see on Jerry Springer, put it that way. They were they were considered very, very poor, very low standing in society. Her parents split up when she was eight years old. Margaret walked out on Mac one day. She just took her kids. She took Virginia, all her siblings, and the whole family moved to Marietta, Georgia. While they were there, the kids attended Robert's Grammar School. Virginia was straight up a bad kid. Like this girl from the very start, she was a bad kid. She seemed to be overly promiscuous and a badass that couldn't be controlled by anybody. She started having sex when she was 11 years old, and that really bothers me because that's such a baby. Like, 11 years old? I was playing Barbies at 11 years old. I can't imagine. It's, it's sad. That's so young to start getting involved in sexual escapades and stuff like that. It's especially crazy thinking about the time period that she's in. Premarital sex is extremely upon. I'm guessing the family was probably religious, which is why they had so many kids, because Christian families tended to have more kids because it was a sin to take birth control. So with an assumedly religious family, Virginia is having sex at 11 years old. That's wild. Imagine what she'd be doing nowadays with the whole you can't slut shame someone movement. She would be wild. Once she starts having sex, she really doesn't ever say no to anybody that wants it. Any boy that wants to be with her can. Virginia continued going to school until she hit the eighth grade. She finished the year up, but she dropped out of school at the end of eighth grade. She had already made a life for herself. She had found a husband at 
14 years old and didn't really see the point of continuing education. Women in these days, they didn't really worry much about getting an education, learning. It was more, we need to know how to knit, to sew, to cook and clean. And she didn't think that she was going to be able to get those skills in school. So she married a man and that man's name was George. George was a lot older and she was 14, but since he was of age, nobody really said anything. Again, remember the time wherein things are just different. Like, it's it's a completely different world back then. The whole marriage is a complete blank. This guy's name isn't even confirmed. Nobody has ever found legitimate documentation saying that this marriage ever happened. I've seen him listed as George Rogers, George Brown, George Randall. Nobody really knows what this guy's actual name is. I see Randall and Rogers the most, so from here on out we'll call him Randall just because I don't know what to call him because there's so many names out there. Randall it is. So the older man, Randall, marries Virginia, 14 years old, whisks her away to another state. Virginia was very elusive. She would go missing for like days, weeks, months. She, she would just go, nobody knew where she went. And then she would suddenly pop back up and would never give an explanation as to where she was. They'd just be like, oh, Virginia's gone again. What the hell? Like, imagine, imagine your family member just going missing. And then like four months later showing up at your doorstep like, hey, where the frick were you? Oh, uh, I don't want to talk about it. So, um, I just wanted to say hi. Like, no, no, that's not okay. When she ran off with George, she wasn't reported missing or anything because the family was so used to her doing this. They were used to her disappearing. They may have freaked out the first few times, but at this point she disappears and they just know that she'll pop back up at some point. This woman literally disappears off the face of the earth and she doesn't show back up until 1933 when she pops back up in Chicago looking for a job. Virginia got a job waiting tables at the San Carlo Italian Village exhibit. This was a restaurant within a festival. So there's this big huge festival going on and this is like a tent or a restaurant that's there for this festival. And it's run by the mob. This was in 1933 during a time when Chicago was hosting a Century of Progress World's Fair. The fair ran from 1933 to 1934 and it brought in a huge amount of tourists. That led to the restaurant being extra busy, which means that she was making a lot of money. This is also at the very end of the Depression. One out of every four Americans were unemployed at the end of the Depression, but tell that to the people that don't have jobs still. I talked a lot about the Depression and what happened, what led up to it, how it played out. I talked all about that in the Nikki Scarfo video, so if you're interested in that subject, go ahead and watch that video. But here, I'll just say, that almost everybody was very, very, very poor and America was struggling really hard. Even though this was the very end of the Depression, unemployment was still skyrocketing, inflation was going crazy, and everybody was financially dying. Everybody. All of America. So the fact that Virginia was able to get a job was huge. So many Americans were struggling with unemployment, so Virginia just pops up in Chicago and she's like, hey, I want a job, and somebody hands her one. Virginia 
Virginia was a really, really smart girl, and she was, like, witty and always had an answer for everything. You know those type of people that literally they, they come in, and the stuff that comes out of their mouth is, like, wild. Like, how do you even think of that in that moment? I don't even understand. I wish I was one of those people that could just... I'm not a spitfire like that. I wish I was. I wish that I could just snap my fingers and come up with a response but i'm one of those people that like if i have an argument i'll think about it for three days afterwards and like oh i should have said this i should have said that but you can't turn back time she was one of those people that you know quick responses right then and there she always had an answer for everything her waitressing job brought in a decent amount of money but it really wasn't enough for what she wanted, so she started to prostitute on the side. She had a pretty bad attitude, and she wasn't really scared of anybody. She would go toe-to-toe with the bosses of the mafia. Like, it, there was nobody that could put this girl down. Her friends described her as charming, flamboyant, and absolutely gorgeous. Emphasis on the gorgeous part, because this girl was an absolute freaking knockout. The most beautiful woman a lot of people that she met had ever met in their life and they were the first to say it like i've never met a more attractive female than virginia hill now while she's working at this mob run restaurant she starts to get really close with her boss joe epstein while some people claim that the two dated it's not true it's pretty widely accepted that epstein was actually gay a lot of people had talked about it, but the talking stopped when he showed up with this knockout woman on his arm. So it seems like Virginia may have been his beard, which, great for them, whatever works. It's sad, I wish that he lived in a time that that could be accepted, but at the time, that wasn't really an acceptable thing. Even if you watch The Sopranos in the 90s, I think it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, in that, there's this big, huge thing because a guy comes out as homosexual that was not something that was accepted back then it's only recently becoming accepted it wasn't even too long ago that gay marriage was legalized in this country like we've made progress but we've made a lot of progress recently so anyway he was gay he used virginia as his beard people stopped thinking that he was gay and that's great joe epstein was a chubby bookie. He, he was described as very mild-mannered. He's smart, the kind of guy that you would expect to see his head in a book all the time. He was an accountant and a bookmaker for the mafia. He worked for Al Capone most of the time, and he would tip Virginia extravagantly. Like, he just threw money at her. The two had a really fun relationship. They'd bicker and banter, they'd pick on each other, throw wisecracks at each other, and this just went on all day between the two. They just went on on and on and on. Epstein quickly started seeing how useful Virginia could be to his operation. She's beautiful, she could work a room, she's smart, streetwise, and money doesn't blind her. He knew that she liked the boys that she was talking to, especially the mafia guys. That especially interested her. But she never made an asshole out of herself. She never got all sappy. She handled herself with pride. She had the makings of a true associate at the young age of 17 years old. Imagine what she would be like as a grown adult. So Epstein convinces Virginia to leave her waitressing job and puts her in place as an associate in the mafia. She would place large cash bets and she'd trick men into making stupid bets that she knew that they would lose and they would get a piece of that. She used her good looks and sex appeal and got absolutely anything she wanted from men. She knew how to work men. She did these jobs typically for a 10% commission and it didn't take long until she was living 
became a really lavish lifestyle. Epstein started to mentor her. He taught her how to dress nicely, how to operate within the mafia, what the rules were. He just, he was teaching her the rules of life. Although they never were in a relationship, Epstein ends up sending Virginia money pretty much for the rest of her life. So they were just lifelong friends. He used to call her the Flamingo because of her long, thin legs. And a lot of people started calling her that too. So that became kind of a nickname for her, was the Flamingo. She started dating Al Capone's cousin, Joe Fischetti, while she was in Chicago. Joe was the youngest of the three, and he was the last one to get involved in the mafia affairs. He tried to stay out of it for for a while, but his two older brothers were in it, so he eventually ended up going into it. You usually do when you have family in the mafia. Joe Fischetti, aside from being Al Capone's cousin, wasn't really notable and didn't really do anything. He and his two brothers, Charles and Rocco Fischetti, moved to Chicago from Brooklyn where they grew up. They followed Al Capone. They worked as his bodyguards, they distilled bootleg alcohol, they were drivers for him, really whatever Al needed, they filled those spots. After Al went to jail, they really came into their own. That's like way later, but when Al Capone went to jail, they ended up opening casinos and bootlegging operations, and they ended up grossing around $20 million a year. So they were pretty successful. Joe Fischetti is actually one of the two men that transported $2 million to the Havana conference for Lucky Luciano for his cut of what's going on in the States. And they rode in style to get there with Frank Sinatra. Other than that, he was pretty boring. His brothers were kind of cool. Not really. They really didn't do much either. He, They were just hired guns. They, they were background men. They never really strived to be bosses or anything like that. The three boys together were pretty powerful, but each individual one doesn't really have anything, and Joe was kind of a glorified errand boy. She became involved with Charles Fischetti, Joe's brother. She wasn't dating him, but she just became involved. They, they formed a relationship. Charles sent Virginia to New York to keep tabs on the Luciano family, so she did, and she did it by sleeping with Joe Adonis, which at the end of the day, she did end up being his lover, so it worked. <laughs> she really got into the whole finer clothing. She grew up in rags, but she wouldn't wear them now. She'd wear gorgeous ball ground dresses, she'd wear pearls, she'd wear cashmere sweaters, tailored suits, the best of the best of the best. Virginia was very determined to leave her humble beginnings and leave them all behind her and start over new. She dressed the part and her home matched it as well. She loved having expensive decor. She continued to better herself. Even though she dropped out of school in eighth grade, she would take classes. She took gourmet cooking classes, French lessons, and she read Shakespeare and Vanity Fair was her favorite book. So she did everything that she could to better herself and make herself more knowledgeable. In 1937, the Chicago Mafia were forming a relationship with the New York Mafia. They didn't really know much about them, and they wanted more information before they formed a concrete relationship. There was a bargain that they made, and they just didn't know enough about the New York crime family to trust that they would hold up their end of the deal. So what's the solution? They send Virginia. This is how Virginia starts taking on a role of a mob's 
Bye. When she got to New York, she quickly started a relationship with Joe Adonis. Adonis fell absolutely head over heels for this girl. I don't know if she loved him back because every single word that he said to her was reported back to the Chicago Mafia and I don't know about you but that doesn't feel like love to me. She told people that she was a Southern Belle society girl who had gone through four rich husbands who had all divorced her or died and that she had received about a million dollars each from their estates. But a lot of people saw through that ruse. They were like, no, that's that's not true. You're lying. But at the end of the day, they really didn't have a way to prove that she was lying because she did have a lot of money. While she was in New York, she met Benjamin Bugsy Siegel at a bar in Brooklyn. Bugsy was tall, blue-eyed man, excellent shape. He worked out every day, so this man is hot. And he's also affiliated with the mafia. He wore expensive suits, and he caught her eye, and she immediately got googly eyes. They went home together that night, which meant Virginia was stepping out on Adonis. I'm sure that Adonis never found out, though. After just a few months in New York, Virginia pulls her disappearing act again. She went down south and bought her mother a home, and she grabbed her brother, Chick. She was really close with Chick, so he came to live with her, and they really spent the rest of their lives together. She decided that she was gonna go west and move to California, and Chick came along for the ride. As soon as she gets to California, we all know what her first move is gonna be, right? Come on, say it with me. Say it with me. She got in bed with a mafia member. I knew you would know. I knew. I knew you'd know. She immediately sidles up to Jack Dragna. Dragna is the king of Los Angeles, and he's the only mafia member that comes out of Los Angeles that has ever been recognized by the commission. Jack Dragna, born Ignazio Dragna in Corleone, Sicily, on April 18th, 1891. He was a bootlegger. He ran extortion rackets. He just did everything that the mafia guys did. He also had legit businesses as well. He had a gambling ship off the coast of California and he controlled unions in the laundromat and dress importing businesses. He was close friends with Tommy Lucchese in New York and he obviously led the family in Los Angeles. Virginia made sure to keep the relationship with Jagna an absolute secret. She could not let that get out. She didn't want it publicly known that she was in the mafia, involved with the mafia. So she started being seen with guys like Errol Flynn, George Raft. Both were movie stars. George Raft actually ended up being one of her best friends for the rest of her life. Gene Krupa, who was a drummer, and Carl Lemel Jr., who was a movie mogul. I may have pronounced that way wrong. I I'm sure you'll let me know in the comments, but that was the best I could do. I don't know. At this point, Virginia is rolling in dough. She's become known as the queen of the mob. She is to this day the highest ranking woman to be recognized as a part of the American mafia. Not because she's someone's girlfriend or wife, not because of any other reason than she did work on her own. I don't think it was possible for her to be made because in order to be made, you have to meet these strict rules and and I'm sure it says that only men can be made somewhere, but if women were able to get made, Virginia would have been on the top of that list. I also don't think that she's even Italian, but she's doing money laundering. She's working for the mafia. She is passing secrets for mafia guys. So like things that they don't want to say on the telephone and then they don't want to meet up. They'll tell Virginia and she'll go and tell 
called the other guy. That's how much they trust her. They're telling her their deepest secrets that they're gonna have transported to other guys. Everybody in the mafia trusts her and she's making a lot. So all in all, she's working for the mafia as a money launderer, a cash courier. She goes to Mexico and she's a Mexican heroin trafficker and she's an informant on mob activities. Not to the police, but to the other mafia members. So she went and slept with Joe Adonis and then reported everything back to Chicago. So she would she would be a, a spy for mob members, which is freaking awesome. Like, go Virginia. Go, girl, do your thing. Like, yes. Yes, represent the women. She wasn't afraid to sleep with men to get whatever job she needed done or to form closer business relationships. From Chicago to California to Mexico, she would flash her expensive clothes around and use her body to seduce men into sealing illegal deals. This girl was no joke. Virginia kind of became like a socialite. The newspapers and magazines would write about her, her name and face were all over the place, and everybody loved her. But she she wasn't a celebrity. She was still, she was on like the 20th page of the newspaper. Not everybody knew who she was. She was in the newspaper, so a lot of people did know who she was, but she wasn't this star. She wore dresses that were designed by the same designers that worked with the most elite Hollywood stars. She would get her hair done at the places that all the elite women went and got their hair done, and she tipped really well. She was known to give a $50 tip every single time that she went. And that would be about $850 today. That led to all the hairstylists fighting over who got to do her hair when she came in, and she came in really often. She regularly hobnobbed with the richest and most elite members of society. She was in California, and all the actors and actresses were obviously in Hollywood, and they all knew her name. The magazine Modern Screen once wrote about a party that she threw. She rented out the Macambo, an upscale restaurant and nightclub on Sunset Boulevard on the Sunset Strip. The club was opened by Charlie Morrison and Felix Young, and it was known as the Playground to the Stars. It was only open from 1941 to 1959, so it had a nice little run, but not anything that's still standing. It had a Latin theme to it. It cost about $100,000 to open the place, which would be just a smidge under $2 million today. Marilyn Monroe lobbied to get this place open. It really meant a lot to her. And then she went hard to get Ella Fitzgerald to perform there. Fitzgerald was the first black performer to play at the Macambo, and that was something that Marilyn Monroe fought hard for. There's some controversy over who performed first, but one thing is certain, Ella Fitzgerald went on to have a really successful career, and Marilyn Monroe had a huge part in helping her start it. Frank Sinatra made his solo debut here, and you can find a long list of celebrities that have both patronized and performed at this nightclub. The point is, Virginia decided to rent this place out for a party one night. The newspapers wrote that altogether the party cost her about $3,000. Considering she headed to Hollywood in 1938, this is probably somewhere around 1940, 1945. That means the cost of her party one night was about $47,000 of today's money. This girl is a freaking spender and she's got loads of money to spend. Now this is where Virginia runs off to Mexico. It appears to everybody that she's just like a white girl on a shopping spree. She's having fun, all dressed to the nines, and she's at the racetrack, she's at the nightclubs, but really, she
she's down there and she's associating with the biggest and the baddest drug dealers in the country. She's setting up lucrative relationships with some of Mexico's biggest drug dealers. Her objective is to secure the American mafia's control over the flow of narcotics from Mexico to the United States, and she got it done. She never went for a project and didn't win that project. It was a little hard for her because she became a star in the Mexican high society. So she was constantly being photographed, she was being followed, chased by the paparazzi, but she had to hide her secret escapades in dark alleys and behind clubs in the shadows. So she's being photographed, but she's also having conversations with these big time drug dealers that can't get caught on camera. While she's in Mexico, her nickname that she had gotten from Joe Epstein, the Flamingo, was further cemented as her moniker. The the newspapers, the magazines, they all started calling her the Flamingo. Again, people called her that because of her beautiful, long, thin legs. It was also a nod to her red hair. She had really, really red hair, and she had a red tint to her skin whenever she would drink too much. I understand that pain. The same exact thing happens to me. The second I take a sip of alcohol, my face goes completely red. It's embarrassing because people think that you're upset or something and you're just like no it's just my skin it just reacts to alcohol it sounds like it didn't happen to her right away it was just when she drank too much but as i said it happens to me the second i take a sip of alcohol so i i understand the pain that she's going through here she starts to travel again and she comes back to america she goes back to her hometown in alabama and she marries ossie griffith an alabama football player she kind of seduced him and they were both in a drunken stupor and she abandoned him within a month so it wasn't a real wedding whatsoever after that happened she immediately went back to california she didn't really want to go back to california to be honest benjamin bugsy siegel was indicted in jail for a murder charge but he ended up dodging that charge in the slaying of a mob associate harry greenberg in 1942 he beat the felony rap but his arrest made the papers and it was really really embarrassing that his arrests made the paper. Embarrassed and frustrated with dealing with LA's gangsters and law enforcement in California, he decides to go to Las Vegas. He had investments there and he had a race wire, the Northern Club and El Cortez casinos. He had relationships there already. He thought Las Vegas had potential as a new resort destination for travelers and he wanted Hill to join him there. Hill said absolutely not at first. She wanted nothing to do with it. No, no, no. Leave me alone. I don't want to go to California. Dragna contacted her and told her, hey, I need you to go to California and tell me what is going on over there. So she's the mob spy and she does as she's told and she goes to California to spy on Bugsy Siegel while she's there. This time around, with Virginia and Bugsy Siegel. The first time that they had met, they had a one-night stand. It was a fling, but this time around, they fall deeply in love with each other. Virginia and Bugsy Siegel formed a tumultuous relationship. They were very different from each other, and a lot of people scratched their heads when they heard that they were together. Bugsy absolutely hated the nickname that was given to him. He would strike out at people that used it, so... His friends called him Ben, so that's how I'm going to refer to him from here on out, Ben. Virginia loved to go out and party the night away, but Ben liked to go to sleep early because he did business during the day. He wasn't really a partier at all, but Virginia could drink 
anybody under the table. This girl could handle her alcohol. They were very alike in some ways too, though. They both loved elegant and exquisite things. The houses that they shared had really expensive finery all over the place. Virginia signed a contract with Universal Pictures in 1940. She took acting classes. She screen tested for movies to play secondary roles. In other words, she never really wanted to be the main character. Picture like a hat check girl or something like that. She did do a few movies, but like if you look on her IMDb, it's kind of like blank. In 1944, soon after Siegel had allegedly punched and essayed Virginia, Los Angeles County Sheriff deputies arrested him for felony bookmaking. So Hill came out and said he R-worded me. As Virginia always does, she got tired of the gig working at Universal Pictures. Her brother Chick said Virginia just chickened out. She knew neither of us had any real talent and it was just too much work. There's a trend with Virginia that you can really see because she can't ever stay in one place for very long. Virginia suffered pretty badly from mental health problems. Back then, mental health was completely disregarded. Oh, you're depressed? You're just sad. Get up and go on a walk. Oh, you're anxious? You're just nervous about XYZ. It'll be fine. Don't worry. So it was just completely written off. Nobody paid any attention to mental health. As much as people wrote Virginia off and told her it'll be okay, Virginia was not fine. She was struggling with what today's psychologists would call bipolar, sociopathic, borderline personality disorder, and sometimes worse things. I want to take a second here and talk about something pretty personal. I'm wearing this sweater today because I have a rash on 90% of my body right now, and it was a reaction to a mood-stabilizing drug that I was on. I know what it's like to struggle with mental health. I've been diagnosed with bipolar, borderline personality disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD, yada yada, everything. I share a lot of the mental health problems that Virginia had. I'm lucky. I was born in a time that mental health eventually mattered. Not when I was a kid. Nobody cared about it when I was a kid. But when I grew up, it did matter. So I was lucky that people were able to pay attention and catch it. Mental health problems are there. They're not fake. They're internal scars that nobody can see, but you fight with yourself every single day. Personally, I'm on a lot of medications to try to stabilize myself, and I had a lot of trauma during my military service, and that led to a lot of these diagnoses being made. At the end of the day, what I want to say is that mental health problems do exist. They're not fake. If you're suffering with mental health problems, please know that you're not alone. I'm a pretty big advocate for therapy, I have two different therapists. At one point I had four. I know I'm not supposed to talk about personal issues on these videos. I should keep it just to the mafia members, but I just relate with Virginia so much. So I had to put my personal story in there because I know what it's like to suffer from what she's suffering from. If she had been born during this time when mental health is actually important, she could have lived a completely different life. So it's sad. It's a tragic thing to see. In the 1940s, 40s, Virginia had a near-fatal pill-swallowing episode where she tried to unalive herself. 
It's not listed anywhere who grabbed her and brought her to the hospital to get her stomach pumped, but I want to say it was probably Ben because they were together at the time, they were living together, so I want to say it was probably Ben that grabbed her and brought her to the hospital in time. This is the kind of relationship that Virginia and Ben had. They'd get into violent fights, they'd throw things at each other, they'd scream at the top of their lungs, their neighbors hated them, they'd wake up the neighbors. Virginia would respond with suicide attempts, crying for days at a time in her room, things were really, really bad. Bugsy Siegel got the idea to open a hotel in Las Vegas. At the time, Vegas was an absolute wasteland. It, it was desert all around. No buildings, no nothing, just desert. Bugsy wanted to build a hotel and a casino, and he wanted to create an entire town around this hotel. There's an urban myth that Ben named the hotel after Virginia because he called it the Flamingo, and she always was called the Flamingo. It was supposedly a present to her, but in reality, the hotel that he created was actually a project that had been started and failed by somebody else. He saw an opportunity and he bought it from that person who had failed with their project. The previous owner had planned to call the club the Flamingo, so he kept it and he was kind of like, oh, that's my girlfriend's nickname. Hey, sweetie, I'm gonna name this hotel after you. But that's really not what happens. He went around to all of his mafia friends and he got them to invest in the hotel. Originally, Ben told them that it would cost about a million dollars to build this hotel casino. Eventually, the costs would skyrocket because of Ben's insistence on extravagance on every single thing. The hotel ended up costing about six million dollars at the end of the day. The mafia guys that had invested and continued investing were mad. Really mad. Ben sold shares of the hotel for investments, but he wound up selling about 250% ownership. In other words, he would offer, let's say, 10% ownership to the hotel for a $50,000 investment. So you give me $50,000, I will give you 10% of this hotel. He would do that with about 25 guys. So he oversold the ownership way above what existed. And people bought into it. People gave him money. Ben was a really good talker and he was very good at convincing people that what he was doing was good. He had huge dreams and huge ambitions. He demanded the finest building that money could buy at a time of post-war shortages. Like, that stuff is not around. Although he kept spending, his checks eventually started bouncing. He couldn't afford the work that's being put into this hotel. By 1947, the costs were over $6 million, which would be about $94 million in today's money. The work was finished by late November and the hotel was set to open. Everything was great. Yeah, we overspent, but let's go make this money. It's gonna open. Everything's gonna be great. Let's do this. Opening night was December 26th, 1946, so the day after Christmas. The casino, lounge, restaurant, and theater were ready and finished and ready to go. People could come in, everything. But there was very few celebrities that came through, and the reason for that was a huge storm that was not normal for the area. Think of like people in the south trying to drive in the snow. They're not used to it. They can't handle it. One inch of snow will close a southern town for a week. But up north in New York, there's three feet of snow on the ground and you're going to work that day. Like, get to work. So it's just this storm was not typical in Las Vegas. People were scared to go out in it. They were scared to drive in it. So not very many people showed up to the opening. So because so many celebrities stayed in their house and didn't come to this opening, the hotel was an absolute flop. Although Bugsy had claimed that the hotel was 
done and ready to go. The lobby was draped with cloths and there was construction noise and celebrities were not used to this kind of stuff. They're not used to sitting and eating while there's hammering going on over there. That's not the way that they live. Ben was intent on making his hotel the first location in the desert to have air conditioning. Air conditioning wasn't a normal thing back then. People used fans, they opened windows, but air conditioning was like nowhere. Unless you were in like a super high up building or someone very rich's house, you did not have air conditioning. That wasn't a thing. The idea of having an entire building with air conditioning was absolutely groundbreaking. Although he had this idea, the air conditioning unit broke down often, like a lot. So like he had air conditioning sometimes. It was it was just a crapshoot of like when it would work and when it wouldn't. The rooms that owners of casinos usually give to high spenders to entice them to stay there and gamble more weren't ready yet. People took their earnings from what they won at the casino and they went to hotels that were far away but they could sleep at. People were reporting to Ben the losses that they were incurring that night and Ben just started getting more and more angry. He threw at least one family out. He started throwing things. He's yelling. He's yelling at people. He's just making a complete asshole out of them. After two weeks, the Flamingo lost $275,000. And by January of 1947, the hotel was closed down. Siegel is obviously freaking out now. He took all of these loans to build this huge hotel casino that completely failed on its first opening. And the guys that he borrowed the money from are no joke. Like, these are mafia members. You don't you don't play around with money like this. He's freaking out. And he has a reason. He, he deserves to freak out. While he suffered great losses, as I said, Ben is an amazing talker. He also had the privilege of having Meyer Lansky behind him. Meyer came and bought out anybody that had invested and wasn't interested in staying invested in this hotel. The hotel reopened on March 1st, 1947. Lansky came and oversaw the opening, made sure everything went well, and the hotel finally started showing a profit. But at this point, honestly, it was just too little, too late. Everybody that invested was upset that it was taking so long, and there really was nothing that he could do at this point to make it better. By the age of 41, Ben had made a name for himself as pretty much creating Las Vegas. I say this all the time, but the world really underestimates the Mafia's role in creating this country. They won World War II for America, they built cities, created towns, they did groundbreaking work. We can credit Ben and all his Mafia investors for creating what is now the Las Vegas Strip. Like, that's such a huge part of history that nobody really acknowledges because he was a criminal. The Havana Conference was held by Lucky Luciano in Cuba, where they discussed many things, among them what to do with Bugsy's insanity. He would tell investors that he would return the loans in his own good time. He defied mob bosses constantly, but they were patient, they dealt with it because they knew he was kind of out of his mind, but he had earning potential. He had always proved that he can earn. Ben went to jail for a short period of time. He was in one of those jails that, like, it's a luxury apartment where, you know, there's a waiter bringing you wine, you have a little table, you you have gourmet food made for you, but there's still bars. He had Virginia managing all of the money for the hotel while he was in jail, 
So she had a bank account that had about $6 million in it. She stole $2 million and put it in a Swiss bank account. You know, this whole video, I could not figure out what was wrong with my face or my hair. I just couldn't figure it out. I just went into my bathroom and I figured it out. I had a part down the middle of my head. How did nobody tell me that? You didn't tell me like, hey, you have a part down the middle of your head. I appreciate it. Appreciate the heads up, but I fix it. I will always be a member of the side part gang, okay? Call me old, call me whatever you want, but I love the side part and my face looked weird this whole video, so I apologize for how weird I've looked. At the Havana conference, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky agreed among the council of mob bosses that were there that Benjamin Bugsy Siegel had to go. This is the one thing that I hold against Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano because Ben was their childhood friend and they just threw him to the wolves because of an investment. Like, you don't just kill your friend that's been your friend your entire freaking life. Like, that's so messed up. Like, I get it. He lost money. That sucks. But does it mean that he is no longer worthy to live? Like, come on. If he had ratted, if he had done anything, like, you know, like, he didn't do any, he just had an investment, but whatever. So Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky agreed that their friend of freaking 40-something years had to go. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel went to Virginia Hill's apartment in California on June 10th, 1947. While they were in an argument, Virginia had jetted off to Paris and Bugsy went back to her hotel. While Bugsy was lounging in a chair, he was pew-pewed multiple times from a sniper in the apartment across the street. Although Lansky agreed that Ben had to go, after Bugsy died, he defended him to the death. He said that Ben saw something among the desert that nobody else saw. An entire city, possibly the world's most famous and infamous city, was built around that single casino that Bugsy Siegel envisioned. The hotel turned a $4 million profit in 1948 alone. The fabulous Flamingo became well known for comfortable air-conditioned rooms, gardens, swimming pools. It, it was just a gorgeous place. The staff became known for wearing tuxedos, like full-blown tuxedos on the job. And many of Hollywood's elite performed there and went there to party. The hotel was sold to a group that included Morris Landsberg and Daniel Lifter, Miami residents that were reputed to have ties to the mafia or organized crime in general for $10 million in 1960. So it ended up being a very profitable thing and they killed their boyhood friend. So I wonder if they felt bad about that afterwards. I hope they did. I really do. I hope they spent the rest of their lives feeling guilty about the fact that they killed their boyhood friend for a hotel that ended up grossing a shit ton of money afterwards. They didn't have to kill him, but they did. While Virginia was with Ben, she continued working for the Mafia. She was a spy, a money launderer, a racketeer. She passed messages between Mafia members who trusted her with their dirty little secrets. One contemporary commenter describes her as more than just another set of curves. She had a good memory, a considerable flair for hole-in-the-corner diplomacy to allay the suspicions of trigger-happy killers and a dual personality, close-lipped about essentials, and able to chat freely and apparently foolishly about inconsequentials. Once in Las Vegas, 
She lost her goddamn mind when she saw Siegel talking to a blonde woman. She went nuts on this girl and Betty Dexter wound up in the hospital with two broken vertebrae. So she beat the brakes off that freaking girl. When Ben died, Virginia was lost. She was in Paris when he was killed. That's where she found out that he was killed. His death made national headlines. And the fact that he was killed at Virginia's apartment was a huge deal. Photos of Siegel's bloody body were published across the country. The Los Angeles Herald got a picture of Ben's nude body in the morgue with a tag attached to his toe listing his name where they misspelled it. Theories were running rampant on who killed him and was Virginia involved. Some of the people and the detectives started asking some hard questions. Was Siegel's murder the product of a conflict over his involvement in heroin trading from Mexico? Was the murder the result of a tug of war over race wire? Siegel had made some enemies by seizing control of the race wire business from other crime groups in the West, so a lot of people didn't like him over there. Police suspected Mo Sedway of Las Vegas, who was feuding with Siegel over the race wire, had something to do with the hit. Or was it one of Virginia Hill's brothers or other protectors behind the shooting in response to Siegel's sometimes abusive treatment of his mistress? Nobody was able to get anywhere in finding his killer. To this day, the case is unsolved. They believe that his death was a product of discussions from the Havana Conference and his losses at the hotel, but they don't know who shot him. They literally don't even have suspects. They just know he was killed. When Ben started seeing Virginia, he was married. He had two daughters and a wife named Esther Krakauer. His daughters, Millicent and Barbara, came along when they moved to Los Angeles for Ben. He left them there and eventually Ben divorced Esther so that he could have a relationship with Virginia. Virginia has even claimed that she and Siegel had been married on the DL, so the divorce did go through. Even though Ben left Esther, she still insists that he was a good man and he helped others. On the property of the Flamingo Las Vegas, between the pool and wedding chapels, there's a memorial plague to Siegel. He's interred in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, California, under where his father, who had passed away just two months before him. So if you look at his plot, his dad is right above him. When asked about Ben by reporters, Virginia would swing between tough talk and tears. She'd claim, yes, I loved him, but he wasn't in love with me or any woman. All he cared about was that goddamn flamingo. In 1951, Virginia was called to testify at the Kefauver trials. Yes, I know I've mispronounced them. In every video, I've called them the Kofer hearings. It's the Kefauver hearings, okay? And all I can say is that I'm getting better, okay? I, I'm growing as a human being. I'm learning what I'm saying wrong, and I'm going to fix it. So don't bug me, okay? I know I said it wrong. I'm saying it right now, okay? Virginia was called to testify at the Kefauver trials like every other mafia member of the time. I don't think I've ever covered a mafia member that didn't testify at these hearings that was alive during that time. Typically, every single person that testified pled the fifth the entire time they were up there. Joe Gallo pled the fifth, I want to say somewhere around like 150 times. Like, man was not playing. He had like a whole spiel written up. He, he was... He was ready to go, okay? <laughs> but Virginia did not plead the fifth. She testified. She showed up in a $5,000 mink coat. Being involved in the Kefauver trials would make her world famous, and she absolutely loved it. Virginia's testimony sent the federal government after her like a bloodhound. In a matter of minutes, she turned into a celebrity, a pariah, a legend, and a fugitive. 
She told the committee that she made $30,000 a year by betting on horses. She said, I don't bet anything now. I'm afraid I'll win and they'll say I made more money than I did. She complained about the flash photography as she began testifying. The people in the courtroom laughed at her testimony. She said, make them quit doing that. I'll throw something at them. When the senators told the press to like knock it off, calm down, it was actually pretty surprising because all the mafia members that had testified before her were subjected to the same thing. Nobody ever stopped them for them. Virginia said that she should get better treatment because most of them never went through with those bums like I did. Hill's testimony gave the government absolutely everything and absolutely nothing. She told them the story of her life, leaving home at 17, marrying powerful men, including Siegel, and how Siegel said that she was not a lady after she beat that blonde up in the casino. When she was leaving the courthouse, she was always swarmed by paparazzi. One day when she was leaving, one of the photographers pointed at Marjorie Farnsworth, of the New York Journal and asked, will you talk to that nice gal? Virginia turned her gaze to Farnsworth and says, you're just a dirty little bum. And then punched Farnsworth in the jaw. Like what a crazy little biatch. As she made her way to the cab, Hill cursed at reporters. She would say things like, I hope the atom bomb falls on every single one of you. The senators questioned her source of income. She replied, the only money I ever made, I reported on my taxes. She fought a tax fraud case until the end of time. She ended up never having to pay a dime on the taxes that the government claimed that she didn't pay. While being swarmed by paparazzi, she would like kick and punch at them. And then she would realize like, hey, this is actually good for me. I want to be famous. So she would like adjust her hat and throw on her fake smile and smile for the paparazzi and pose and you know, all that. And she's doing this at the same photographers that she was just punching two seconds ago. So it was very confusing for them because they really never knew what to expect from her. During the Kefauver trials, America loved Virginia. Her testimony made her seem brutal and violent and glamorous and charming and cunning and dangerous. Everybody loved her. This is the first woman that comes out like this. Women don't do this. Women aren't enterprising racketeers in the mafia. That's not a thing that women do. Women cook and women clean. But women don't money launder. That's, that's not a thing. So everybody falls in love with Virginia because she's the first of her kind to do this. The FBI came to the conclusion that Virginia was the central clearinghouse for intelligence on organized crime and enjoyed an independent power base within the mafia. A columnist, Robert C. Ruark, wrote about Virginia. He said, it appeared to have the entire committee mesmerized as a bird stares hopefully at a snake. You even believed that Virginia Hill exists, which of course cannot possibly be true. She's a mirage, thought up by a drunken magician. Virginia Hill seems to have been an Alice in Wonderland of illegality. Any secret she holds are safe, because this is a girl who don't know nothing about nothing and is a little loath to say so. America loved her. The public sympathized with her, with what she had done and what she had been through. She was painting a target on her back with her testimony, but the American public stood behind her regardless of her crimes. When Senator Toby asked Virginia, but why would Joe Epstein give you all that money, Miss Hill? She replied, you really want to know? He replied, yeah, I really want to know. She said, then I'll tell you why. Because I'm the best cocksucker in town. The audience went wild. It, it was like mayhem broke out in the courtroom. It's like a Hollywood movie. The judges banging his gavel. Order, order, I demand order. It was crazy. 
She came out with that and everybody lost their goddamn minds. The Kefauver trials put the IRS on Virginia's back, and they wouldn't stop coming for her. Eventually, she ran away to Austria by the time the government had auctioned her property to pay back taxes. They were literally auctioning off, like, forks and knives from within the house. It was dirty. She married an Austrian skier named Hans Hauser and spent years in Austria even after she separated from Hauser. Virginia and Han had a child named Peter. The family together wandered the globe. They went from Hong Kong to Paris. They stayed in the most exquisite hotels. And Virginia started to drink more and more to dull the pain inside of her. She made regular trips to Switzerland to put money into bank accounts for the mafia. Swiss bank accounts was like the way to go if you wanted to keep your money transactions a secret. Eventually, Virginia wanted to come back to the U.S. She offered the IRS $100,000 to be able to re-enter the country. Her sister, B.H. Ward, said they said it wasn't enough. Virginia just wanted to come back and see her mother before she died. She kept my mother like a queen with diamonds and clothes. Eventually, Virginia continues her trope that she's been doing her entire life, and she leaves Hauser. But she still stays in Austria. Her teenage son supported her after she had left her husband by working as a waiter. She lived in an alpine hut with her son and started to write her memoirs. She never finished her memoirs, so they were never published. I would die. I would die to see these memoirs. I want to see it so bad. After Siegel died, Hill continued to work for Luciano. That wasn't the end of her relationship with the Mafia. She would still transport money and goods throughout the U.S. and European capitals, including Switzerland, where she regularly deposited syndicate money into Swiss bank accounts. Fifteen years after testifying at the Kefauver hearings on March 24th, 1966, Virginia went to meet Joe Adonis, Guys, please excuse me if you see my dog popping up. He's a big, huge pit bull. I've been doing this for a while, so he's having a temper tantrum, so I have to pet him for a while. So we're going to go on while I pet my dog. Fifteen years after testifying at the Keith Foffer hearings on March 24th, 1966, Virginia went to meet Joe Adonis, an old lover that understood her and understood everything that she had been through. Hill wrote a note saying that she was simply tired of life. She was dead after what was said to be her eighth suicide attempt. Her body was found in the snow in Salzburg, Austria. The Nevada Public Radio wrote an article about her saying that on an early spring day in 1966, she suddenly headed to Naples to meet a now-exiled Joe Adonis. Several days later, she was found in the woods near Salzburg, dead from an overdose. I can't understand why my mother died so suddenly and under mysterious circumstances, her son told UPI. Dangerous men gave Virginia Hill secrets to keep, and she built a life on those secrets. She, of all people, knew that surrendering these secrets could mean surrendering her life. But Virginia Hill had always pushed her luck right up to its limits. It wasn't hard to understand that one day that luck would run out. There was theories that Virginia may have been killed by the mafia because when she was trying to get back into the United States, she had offered the IRS $100,000, but she had also offered them her little black book which had all the information about everything that she had done for the Mafia. It was that important to her to be able to get back into America. But the FBI wasn't interested. They kind of like scoffed at her. They're like, nah, you, <laughs> we're good. We don't want that. It's not worth you coming back in this country. No thank you. No ma'am. Leave us alone. Which is really sad because she wanted to come back into America to say goodbye to her mother. Her mother was dying. 
and then she died. And it seems like she did commit suicide, but there's always that little question of, did somebody kill her and make it look like a suicide attempt? And everybody just believed it because she had tried to kill herself so many times. Virginia Hill was the epitome of the gangster's mall. Gun-toting, wise-cracking, glamorous and sexy, and most of all, rich. Andy Edmonds wrote that in her 1993 book Bugsy's Baby, The Secret Life of Mob Queen Virginia Hill. Her name was familiar in almost every single American household. Women kind of tended to hate her because their men fantasized about her, and the government vowed to destroy her. Honestly, women will always hate women. Like, we're finally coming upon a time where it's, you know, it's recognized women should help women. Women should boost up other women, you know, support other women. That is not a thing. Like, let's be real here. I regularly get comments on my videos that I'm a whore and I, I'm a slut. I, I expose too much of myself. I'm sloppy. I'm, you know, I, and it's always women. It's always women. It's always, always, always women. I've never seen a man say anything about that. Men don't care. I want to wear what I want to wear and men are okay with that. But women? <laughs> women hate me. They comment, I, I would say on a regular basis, I get at least one comment saying like, you're trash. You shouldn't wear that. Ugh. How gross. Shut the f up. It's something like built into women's DNA that they have to hate another woman. I don't know what it is but it does exist. By the mid-1960s, Virginia had wearily related to people that she wished to commit suicide. Nobody ever took it seriously. In 1965, her husband found her unconscious, and he took her to the hospital for yet another overdose of sedatives, her seventh overdose, to be pumped from her stomach, according to the Mob Museum. She left her home on March 22nd, and her body was found two days later. The Mob Museum wrote about Virginia, saying, Using her looks, sexual liaisons, and talents for laundering money and stolen merchandise, Hill rose higher than any woman in the national underground, and equal among the most infamous male racketeers in the United States. Among them, Meyer Lansky, Joe Adonis, Frank Costello, Johnny Roselli, Charles and Joe Fischetti, Tony Accardo, Frank Nitti, William Icepick Alderman, Jack Dragna, and the most famous, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I don't think that they meant that Bugsy Siegel was the most famous. I think that they meant that her relationship with him was the most famous. Because out of those guys that I just listed, I promise you, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was not the most, the most famous. Absolutely not. My heart really breaks for Virginia. I gotta say, most Mafia members that I cover, I don't really get emotionally attached. But with Virginia, my heart aches for this woman. She was just born at the wrong time. When people didn't acknowledge mental health and wrote people off as crazy when they had any issues instead of helping them. If Virginia could have had help, therapy, medication, she could have lived a long, happy, healthy life. I have the same diagnosis as she does, and I've done a stint in the grippy socks vacation multiple times. It's heart-wrenching, and it's so hard when you get to the point that you don't want to live anymore. It's, it's the hardest thing ever. Virginia attempted suicide eight times. Somebody could have, somebody should have, stepped in and helped her after attempt number one but they would just pump her stomach, 
keep her under observation and send her on her way when she was okay. It's heartbreaking to think about what a better life she could have lived had she been born during this time right now. She could have gotten help. Yes, people commit suicide even today. The number of veterans that die every day is 20. 20 veterans die per day of suicide. Coming out of the military myself, I have literally not once met a female in the military, in the army in particular, that's my service, that hasn't had some kind of experience with sexual assault. It's absolutely wild, the trauma that the military inflicts. It's crazy. Nowadays, the VA is a lot better than it used to be. They're on top of it. They offer a lot of resources. But some veterans don't get that. They don't get a discharge high enough or they don't get disability high enough to allow them to go to the VA. All of these issues are really close to my heart because I've experienced them. I've been in the military. I got kicked out for PTSD. I've been diagnosed as BPD and bipolar and all those really scary names that are just a cover for you experienced some serious freaking trauma in the military. She lived her life in a way that anybody with half a brain could tell that she had issues. She had four husbands. She never stayed in one place too long. Like literally she was hopping between continents on a regular basis. She moved constantly. She married constantly. She divorced constantly. And she attempted suicide constantly. Someone could have caught it. Someone should have caught it. So that's all I have on this heartbreaking, tragic story of Virginia Hill. She was named the queen of the mafia the Flamingo, and played an integral part in the Mafia throughout the world, from Chicago to New York to Mexico to Los Angeles. This racketeer and money launderer lived an eventful, insane life and died way too young from a curable mental illness. Please don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, do all the things, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye!